This is a picture of me. <laughs> 17 years old in grade 12, my senior year of high school. In so many ways, it's so strange to look at this picture, to look at this picture of myself. Not only because I look and am unbelievably young, and now it's weird to think I'm now more than twice as old as the person in this photo. It's also strange because in many ways, I feel like I'm a different person. If you had known me back then when I was 17 years old and you knew me now, you would say, yeah, there are definitely some similarities. Back then, I deeply enjoyed running. I was also immensely and fiercely competitive, as Sharon and our staff here can, can attest to. It's still the case today. But you would also acknowledge that there are some significant differences between the person who's being represented in the picture and the person here today. In many ways, I was intensely insecure as a young man, especially in my senior years of high school, and cared deeply about my own popularity. I remember hiding parts of myself, including my character, to fit in better, especially with the popular crowd. One blaring and obvious example from the picture here was my hair color. I remember being made fun of growing up for my reddish-orange hair color. And so I dyed it, this kind of bleachy blonde on top, to better fit in. Another, perhaps more substantive example is I remember, and I remember this memory with a bit of pain, I remember turning my back and giving up a very close friendship in order to pursue becoming a part of the popular crowd. This close friend who I had known for years and been very close to didn't fit in with the popular crowd. Uh, but I so wanted to be a part of this popular crowd that I turned fairly quickly, to be honest, my back on this friendship and on him. And it's so strange and actually so hard to look back on that memory because I'm a person now who deeply values friendship and loyalty and integrity. And to look back, it feels like I was almost a different person. And reflecting back on that 17-year-old self and the person here today, and wondering, asking, what were some of the most significant factors in the change? Age and maturity definitely played a part in it. But without a doubt, the biggest factor was the presence of God and his refining work in my life. We're in a sermon series here at 10th called The Gift of the Holy Spirit where we've been looking at different images of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture. And today we're going to look at the image of the Holy Spirit as fire, who brings God's presence to us and who works God's refining work in our lives. I'm going to read in a moment a passage from Luke 3, but before I read it, let me set up the passage for you. We're introduced to John the Baptist, who is preaching in the wilderness, and John's a prophet, and he has this really simple message of repentance and baptism. Repentance, which literally means to turn away from something and to turn to something else. He's inviting his listeners to turn back to God and to turn away from sin and anything else that would distract 
and divert their attention, their hearts, their minds away from God. And second, so first, repentance, and second, a baptism in water. Baptism, which literally means immersion into water, is symbolic of an immersion in God's very presence and a desire to follow him with our whole hearts and lives. And John the Baptist's message was so popular that people were flocking to the desert to listen to him. And it was effective. People were repenting and being baptized, desiring to follow God with their whole lives, to return to him. And he was so popular and effective that people began to wonder, is this John the baptizer, is he the promised Messiah? The one who would come and who would save God's people from their sins, but one who would also save them from their enemies. So people were wondering that question. And into that question, we read in Luke 3, the following. Luke 3, verses 15 through 16. The people were waiting expectantly. And we're all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water. But one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit or holy wind and with fire. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for John the Baptist and the ways that he so faithfully pointed ahead of himself. He pointed to the Messiah, to you, Jesus. He tells his first century audience and to us that when Jesus comes, that he will pour out this holy fire, the very presence of God for us. We thank you that this holy presence, this Holy Spirit, didn't only come in the first century, but continues to come to us today. So we are here, and we are attentive, and we expect the work of your Spirit. Amen. So John the Baptist has just clarified he is not the Messiah. And he said, what is the telltale factor where you will know that the Messiah has come? He says, whereas I baptize in water, I immerse people into water, that the Messiah, when he comes, that he will baptize in holy wind or Holy Spirit and with fire. So John the Baptist offers two images, wind and fire. Three weeks from now, I'm going to do a deeper dive on the first of those two, this holy wind, this symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit as wind. But today we want to do a, a focus in on the second of those two, namely the Holy Spirit as fire. And we'll see that as John tells us that Jesus, when he invites us into a baptism of fire, means two things. First, a baptism into God's presence. And second a baptism, an immersion into the refining work of God's presence in our lives, that God wants to transform us, 
to bring new life and new creation, to help our lives to shine just like gold. And so let's look at the first of those two together. Now, most of our imaginations have been shaped and captivated by TV, media, YouTube, social media. But John's first century audience, their imagination had been captivated by the scriptures. The scriptures were what they primarily read to each other at night. It's what they read to each other at synagogue on Saturdays. It was the story through which they framed the rest of their lives. And so when John the Baptist is telling them that the Messiah, who we will find out soon in the Gospel of Luke, and we know now is Jesus, that when Jesus comes, that he will baptize in fire, what they would have, what would have come to mind when they heard those words was likely stories from the scriptures. That's how they would have interpreted John's words. And without a doubt, one of the strongest connections that they would have made is to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, this idea of fire is prominent, isn't it? Even if you didn't grow up in the church, maybe you've heard these two stories. The first one is Moses and the burning bush. Yeah, that's right. Moses and the burning bush. What happens? Moses shows up in the desert to see this bush that ignites and wouldn't go out in fire. And this fire represents God's presence. And again, a little bit later in the book, we learn that God's people are taken out of slavery in Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, and into the wilderness to receive freedom. And what was it that guided them out of Egypt and into the wilderness? It was a pillar of fire. So both in the burning bush and this pillar of fire are symbolic physical representations for the Israelites of God's presence. And so they're hearing baptism of fire, and they're thinking the book of Exodus. They're thinking God is inviting us into an immersion of God's very presence on us. And we know today that this was, in fact, the invitation. Because just a number of years after John the Baptist preached this message, after Jesus had gone to the cross and died and resurrected and had ascended to God the Father, we're told that something special happens in an upper room. The disciples are meeting together in fear, not sure of what would happen next. And then we're told these words from the book of Acts. Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Once again, the Holy Spirit, God's presence, comes. And the physical representation of God's presence, little tongues of fire that settle on top of everyone's head. Perhaps they would have looked like, if you were there in person, tiny burning bushes over top of everyone's head or small pillars of fire. That throughout the scriptures, there's a deep and close connection between fire, which represents God's presence coming to dwell on us. 
This isn't a passive, impersonal, unknowable presence of God, but in fact is the powerful, personal presence of God coming to each and every one who calls on him and who wants to know him. I was having coffee with a congregant just a couple of weeks ago, the coffee shop just a block down the street from here. She had started coming to 10th because of two friends who attend here, who, as she describes, have this powerful and beautiful relationship with God and this personal connection with God in prayer. And she found it compelling, and honestly, she wanted that. But she said, there is one thing that she knows about God, that God is unknowable. And by that, she meant that God could not be known, either empirically or scientifically. I told her, Christians don't believe in an unknown, unknowable God. Christians believe in a God who has made himself known throughout history and who continues to make himself known today. The Bible isn't a a book of morals that teaches how to become good people. It's an introduction to this personal God and how to know him and how to have a personal relationship with him. I said, if you want to have that same close and intimate relationship with God that your friends have, here are two things that you can do. The first is to read the scriptures and start with the gospels. Jesus is the most historically, or at least one of the most historically verified ancient people in history. And even though she had her doubts about the historical validity of the Bible, I told her it was written by people who knew Jesus personally. And I recommended John's gospel because John was one of Jesus' disciples. He spent time with Jesus. In fact, he calls himself the beloved disciple. What a beautiful name to call yourself the beloved student of Jesus. John calls himself the beloved disciple. I said, if you want to get to know this seemingly unknowable God, read the Bible. Read about Jesus who didn't allow himself to remain unknown, but who made himself known and became in the bodily form of a human, in the person of Jesus, to make him known to all. And John, in his old age, either himself or through someone else, wrote down his gospel. And we can know about the life of Jesus from someone who walked alongside Jesus himself in the gospels. Said, you want to get to know God? Read the gospels. Read about Jesus I said, you also want to get to know God? Pray. Jesus doesn't allow himself to remain unknown to us, but just like the disciples in the upper room offers us his very presence, his very life, he is closer to us than our next breath. And he invites us to come and get to know him, and all we need to do is ask him to come to us. And that's something that I have experienced personally. Some of you have heard this story before, but in the summer of 2005, I began to explore faith and church for the first time. I was curious about God and wanted to find greater purpose for myself. So I started to attend church with a close friend and their family. And I'd been attending for a number of weeks and had a thousand and one questions and just continued to ask them. 
but I had so many doubts as well about the Bible, just like this person who I chatted with, about Jesus, about faith, about truth. She said to me, have you ever thought about saying the words, I believe in Jesus before? And I didn't grow up in the church, and so someone who asked that, it's one of the strangest questions to ask somebody who didn't grow up around faith. If you were to say, I believe in Jesus before. I said, I've never thought of saying that, and don't plan on saying it. And she was generous and gracious and let it go. But those words bounced around in my heart and mind, and I just couldn't shake them. A couple weeks later, I was working in my city of Vancouver work truck, driving southbound on Oak Street, somewhere between, I think, 50th and 60th Avenue. And I couldn't shake these words. And I was honestly considering leaving church and giving up, exploring God altogether. But these words kept bouncing in my mind and in my heart. And I thought, you know what? I I really have nothing to lose. And as quietly as I could, I whispered the words, I believe in Jesus. And it was like this light came on in my heart. And this unexpected smile came on my face. And I did the only thing I thought you should do in that moment. I said it again, and I said it louder. So I said, I believe in Jesus. And this light shone brighter, and this smile got bigger. And I said it again and again and again until in the middle of rush hour traffic, basically parked beside all of traffic along Oak Street with my windows down, was screaming, I believe in Jesus in my work truck. (laughs) And I didn't look over, but I can't even imagine what the neighboring cars beside me were thinking with this person yelling, I believe in Jesus in his city of Vancouver work truck. But the experience was so overwhelming and so unexpected that I had to pull my work truck over and park beside a city park just to try and capture a little bit of what had happened. I knew that I would honestly, I'm just such a critical, introspective person, I would never believe that that had happened if I didn't stop just to take capture of what had actually happened in that moment. And after about maybe 10 or 15 minutes, I had reason that I'd called out to Jesus and in some how, in some way, he had responded. I didn't really know who this Jesus was, and I didn't know what this meant for my life, but I wanted to know more. And that, for me, became a significant factor in the next step of my life journey of faith. That God is not distant and unknowable, but God invites us to know him personally and powerfully. That he invites us to an immersion in God's presence as God offers his very life, his very spirit, his presence to us in and through the Holy Spirit, that Jesus sends his very presence to us. And so we're invited into an immersion of God's holy presence. Second, when John's first century audience was thinking about what it meant to hear this invitation to be baptized in fire, they would have first thought of the book of Exodus But likely in other places their imaginations would have gone to is the book of Zechariah. The book of Zechariah is one of the last final books of our Old Testament. And it's a book about an invitation to return to the Lord. And all of the people who were in the desert were there because they wanted to return back to God. 
It's why John's invitation to repentance and be baptized was so compelling. They wanted to return. And in the book of Zechariah, Zechariah 13, we read this. And perhaps these words would be bouncing around in their minds too. The book of Zechariah, I'm going to read 13, 1 to you first, and then we're going to jump into the rest of the passage afterwards. Zechariah says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from impurity. And then later in verse 9, This third of people I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. So the invitation to be baptized into fire is also an invitation to receive more of God's refining presence in our lives. Have anybody ever attended Britannia Mines before? Do you know where it is? Partway between the North Shore and Squamish, right? Well, as an elementary school student in New Westminster, our school went to Britannia Mines for a field trip. And while we're there, we got to look around. Britannia Mines used to be one of, if not the biggest, copper mine in Canada. So we got to look around the copper mine and other areas. But one thing that we did was that we got to do gold panning. Maybe some of you have done it in other tourist towns throughout BC or Canada. And after you move this pan back and forth through the silt and through the rocks and through the mud for a while, eventually in your pan you'll be able to pull out something that looks a bit like this. These small flakes of gold, which then we, we put in water. But the gold that we saw in our pans that day, like the gold that's on our fingers or on our jewelry, isn't what comes out of the ground. What comes out of the ground in the mining process is something that looks more like this. This gold ore, these rocks that do have gold metal in them, but have other metals and minerals as well. And this gold ore doesn't shine through with the kind of glimmer and glitz and light the way that our rings and other jewelry do. Because they're full of other kinds of things as well. That the other metals and minerals that are in this gold ore take away from the shine and brilliance and beauty of the gold that's in there. In order to take this gold ore into the final products that some of us wear or have at home, gold ore goes through a refinement process where sometimes chemicals, but almost always fire and heat, are applied to the gold ore in order to separate the parts that are unwanted and take away from the shine and the glimmer and the brilliance of the gold that's inside and help to bring out the, the light and the sparkle and the beauty of the gold that's in there. And similarly, God doesn't want to leave us like gold ore. God wants to refine us to help to separate out the sin, the brokenness, the destructive habits, and the parts of our lives that, if we're honest, weigh heavy on us. God doesn't want us to become numb to the sin and destructive habits of our lives. But he wants us to know more of the glimmer, the beauty, and the shimmering light of God's love. That our lives can shine more for our own sake 
for the sakes of our friends and neighbors and as a gift back to God. God wants to refine us. I remember hearing a story of a guy whose street name was Big John. Big John lived on the streets in London, and Big John had lived a really hard life. He had lived on the streets, and by this point, he was addicted to meth. And he came to a shelter connected to a church in London, just looking for sanctuary and for refuge, for a place to sleep. And over time, he got to know some of the people who were there. See, John was not only a big guy who lived a big life, but who was a pretty intimidating person as well. He had been in the army for, I believe, nine years and had been a boxer there as well. So he was an intimidating man. The, the name Big John held big sway. And Big John had built this wall around his life to protect himself from others, from really the hard life that he had lived. But as he got to know people at the shelter, people who were connected to the church community, some of those walls began to break down. They began to become more open and, and trusting. And he eventually attended with a number of them to church and got connected to the Alpha Course. Alpha is a popular intro to Christianity course that even I attended when I was exploring faith. And Big John, when he attended Alpha, met Jesus and received God's very presence through the Holy Spirit. And God's presence and refining work in Big John were so powerful that they were noticed by everyone. Big John got off the street. He got off of meth. He got a job, and he slowly began to build healthy connections, deep connections with others around him. And the difference was so significant, not only for himself, but recognizable to others, that whereas previously he had been given by others on the street the name Big John, he was now given the new name, John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Because everywhere he went, people on the street said, John comes and preaches the gospel and shares about Jesus, just like John the Baptist did, pointing to Jesus. For Big John to receive the holy presence of God didn't involve leaving him where he was, but God loved him too much to leave him as unrefined ore, but wanted to bring out the gold and the brilliance and to bring new life into John. And throughout the Bible, a new name symbolizes a new character, doesn't it? Abram becomes Abraham. Saul becomes Paul. And God is in the business of new life and transformation. God wants to bring something new out of each of us too. And while sometimes this change is drastic and dramatic, and we may in some ways feel unnoticeable to our old selves, like perhaps if I had interviewed my 17-year-old self today, he probably wouldn't even recognize that we're the same person. Or like how maybe Big John, if he had looked back on his old self, seems almost like a different person too. But sometimes the change that God brings in us, refining our character, is more subtle and small. It happens day to day and not just in a big moment, but God wants to continue to help to bring out the best of ourselves, to refine out broken parts of our character that take away joy and life from ourselves and from others. 
I was having lunch with someone named David, who's a part of our community here, and his wife. And we were chatting together, and he was sharing about the ways that God's been moving and working in his life. And he shared this story that I, I absolutely loved. He says this. When I was sitting at an intersection and the light turned green, the car in front of me did not move. In the past, I would have been honking and making a fuss. I would have had an unnecessary stress. But instead, I asked God to give me patience and calmness. And I breathed deeply. And a calm came over me. And within a few seconds, the car in front of me moved forward. It was literally a five or six second delay. But in the past, I would have roared past this driver, cut him off, and for what? A few seconds? I prayed and breathed in the Spirit and prayed for calmness, and God gave it to me. And one of the things that I love about this example is that it's so small and simple. It's also, honestly, an area that I'm working on, too. In my own driving, as Sabin knows this too, trying to pray for calm when traffic isn't moving as quickly as I want to move. But so much of God's work doesn't just happen in large, dramatic movements, but happens in small and simple ways where we ask for God's spirit to come to us, to refine us. And we can feel the heaviness of that too, right? When we act irrationally and impatiently on a driver who's driving around us, just trying to get to work. Or maybe when we yell at our kids or act impatiently to our children or our, our spouse. Or maybe we engage in a destructive habit like pornography or something else. We feel the weight of these on us, don't we? The weight of sin. The weight that David talks about in Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, David, who who knew the weight of sin, who had failed so many people, who had murdered for his own self-gain, says these words. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent... When I kept sin to myself, my bones wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as if in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgive me, you forgave me of guilt and sin. God's refining work starts with forgiveness. It starts with us being open and honest about the parts of our lives that we would rather hide. The anger, the impatience, the apathy that dwell within us. Or the sin that separates us from God, from our spouse, from our children, from our neighbors. It saps away joy. This sin weighs heavy on us, doesn't it? At the moment we react angrily and inattentively to our kids, it weighs on us. 
But God doesn't want sin to weigh on us. In fact, the, be- the beginning of God's refining work is the ability to confess that sin and to receive his forgiveness. Because only when we're honest with our sin and receive God's unbounding, unbelievable generosity and grace and forgiveness will we ever trust the more tender and hidden parts of our lives to him. And only then will we experience relief and lightness from the weight of sin that weighs us down. That God doesn't want us to live lives like gold ore, filled with all of these other parts that diminish the brilliance and the brightness and the joy within us. From the light that we long to share with our spouse, our kids, our neighbors, and with God. But God wants to refine those out from us and forgive us. This is why I love the image of fire. Because even though sin, when we have it in our lives, weighs heavy on us, that when we name it and we confess it to God, that God, who is a holy fire and who burns, takes our sin and through the cross and through the work that Jesus has done, deals with it so completely and so fully, it's as if God burns it like it does that piece of paper. God's refining fire longs to bring you light and light and forgiveness. To allow you to experience the lightness of his healing and not be weighed down by the weight of sin. To allow your light and life to shine more beautifully and brilliantly, not like the gold in a piece of ore, but like a piece of pure gold, shining forth in beauty and in brilliance. I want to offer us an opportunity to receive the unbelievable, unbounding forgiveness of God. To be honest beforehand about those parts of our lives and our character, maybe our habits that we wish were not there. And the sin that weighs heavy on us today. So I want to give us a moment, just a second, to name an area of sin in our life that feels like it weighs heavy on us today. Or perhaps an area of our character or our habits that sap life and joy and light from ourselves and for others. And then I'm going to pray us through Psalm 32 as God offers his forgiveness to us. So let me invite you now to close your eyes. And in your mind, just to name God who knows all things about us, to name that area of sin in our hearts and our lives that is weighing heavy on us today. Or that part of our character or habits or patterns of life that sap life and joy and light and brilliance from ourselves and others. Just to name that. Where do you long to receive God's lightness and forgiveness today? And into that, Jesus speaks the words of David to you. 
Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. Lord, we acknowledge our sin to you, and we did not cover up our iniquity. We say, we confess our transgressions to you, God. And you forgive and forgave the guilt of our sin. God, you forgive our sin so fully, more fully and completely than the fire that burned up that piece of paper. We thank you that you are a refining fire that longs to bring out the best of ourselves, to bring new life and brilliance, that our lives may shine forth to bring light and beauty and hope and joy, not only for our own sake, but for our families, our neighbors, as an offering to you. Thank you for your unfathomable, unquestioning grace and forgiveness and the promise that you will and can not only offer your very presence, but your refining work to bring transformation and new life in us. Amen.